and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. I think I can speak for just about everybody when I say that this holiday season might be one of the most difficult we've ever been through. You might be feeling a wave of secret relief, or maybe you're actually feeling a little wistful for the inevitable bickering about politics or 30-year-old family stories that seem to morph further from reality each year around the Thanksgiving dinner table. Maybe you're feeling a lot of things all at once. This is really hard. It's just really different from what we're used to. But we know now that we can do this. The events over the last year have proven that we're resilient, we're strong, and in this community, we really do stick together. That being said, how are you feeling going into the holidays this year? How are you feeling about the governor's announcement that some restrictions are coming back beginning tomorrow, and those restrictions are going to affect Thanksgiving celebrations across our state? We want to hear from you this hour about what you're thinking and feeling as we spend some time talking about the recent surge in COVID cases here in Michigan and across the country, the potential implications of these new vaccines, and what things look like for healthcare workers and hospitals in this moment. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. You can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. And joining us now for a look at the current national picture of the coronavirus is someone who's been studying all of this very closely since March, Alexis Madrigal. He's a staff writer at The Atlantic, a co-founder of the COVID Tracking Project, and the author of Powering the Dream, The History and Promise of Green Technology. Alexis, welcome to Detroit Today. Hey, thanks for having me. So you recently wrote a piece for The Atlantic in which you say that COVID-19 hospitalizations are at an all-time high. That's something that we also are hearing and seeing uh, on social media and cable news all the time. But but give us a brief idea of what's happening nationally uh, from a bird's eye view. Sure. Um, well, it started really um, in the Dakotas and in Wisconsin. Um, we started to see outbreaks that were as bad as the springtime, um, which is to say, you know, when you really look at the number of cases per million people, you look at hospitalizations uh, per million, you start to see numbers that really we didn't see over the summertime that we only saw uh, at the very beginning in the, in the spring. And as, you know, October turned into November, um, those smaller states, um, infection spread out of there into the larger states uh, of the Midwest. You start seeing, you know, uh, Michigan, you know, Ohio, uh, Indiana all start to, to go um, and, you know, maybe 12 days is usually how it looks. About two weeks after we see cases spike, we all start to see hospitalizations um, rise really quickly. Um, and and Michigan is actually a great example of the larger pattern. You know, there were a ton of hospitalizations in Michigan in the early days in April, largely 
centered uh, around Detroit. Um, a, a wider spread um, this time around, but we see you know hospitalizations rising incredibly quickly. I mean, just um, we saw uh, things go from you know a couple thousand people hospitalized at the beginning uh, of the month to 3,500 um, here in the middle of the month, and you know so far it doesn't look like anything uh, is stopping across any of these states yet. Um, obviously, you know, the governor's um, new orders may change some of those things, um, but it's really tough to fight a pandemic like this on a state-by-state basis um, because just like we saw uh, in the Northeast in the springtime, you know, once things got going really around the New York metro area, uh, you know, really hit the entire Northeast region and, you know, as things got going in Wisconsin and the Dakotas, now it's hitting the entire uh, Midwest and to be honest, really, a lot of the country looks like this, too. Hmm. Um, it's most concentrated still in the Midwest. So one of the things for me that wasn't surprising about this is that we saw this surge take hold in states that had never really taken the precautions all that seriously, states that didn't shut down a lot of businesses where people interact with each other, states that didn't shut down their schools, states that weren't really encouraging people to wear masks or requiring them to wear masks in in public and it seemed as though they were they were asking for it they were they were courting this kind of uh, consequence at, at some point but we're also as you point out seeing these things happen in places like Michigan where we really locked down hard for all of the summer, really, and and I think as much as any other state took this incredibly seriously, and and so I think it really, in some ways, raises this question about what we did wrong in a place like Michigan. Why, why are things uh, happening as badly here as they are in places like the Dakotas, where? Leadership just said, you know, we're we're not going to respond to this. Well, you know, there's things like governor's orders, right? I mean, there's official policies of a state or the state. But then there's just what happens with people and what people are doing. And I think, you know, from my perspective, I'm talking to public health experts, one of the great failures of the Trump administration was that basic public health methods got just incredibly politicized. And I think the president saw it as a win to push back on uh, the real experts around infectious disease. And what that means is that, you know, in a state like Michigan, which is very divided politically, uh, a state like Wisconsin, very divided politically, um, even though people took it more seriously than, say, you know, in the Dakotas, um, there's still large numbers of people uh, who are not taking it as seriously. And, you know, that's that's a big problem. You know, I mean, this is an infectious disease. So, you know, the way that you've got some people who aren't taking it seriously, uh, it's a problem for everyone. And I think, you know, I, I oftentimes, you know, because I live here in Oakland, it's fairly... Um, you know, it's got a radical history. I've read a lot of, you know, uh, political history of the United States and a lot of talk around, you know, national unity is overblown a lot of the time, I think. Mm-hmm. 
country's never really been uh, united. However, in this particular case, you need the country to act in unison, and that's never happened. And it's left governors in this incredibly difficult position. I mean, the truth is the other governors of the Midwest are going to have to do what the governor in Michigan has done uh, sooner or later. I mean, look at what's happening uh, now in North Dakota, where they finally are uh, working on a mask mandate. I mean, look at what's happening with the Republican governor of Wyoming, one of the reddest states in the country. Um, also extremely angry about what's happening with COVID in, in the state. I mean, I think this, you know, everybody is going to go to more restrictive measures because of hospitalizations and because of the staffing shortages that are beginning to happen in many states, although thankfully Michigan thus far um, is not reporting as many staffing shortages according to new numbers that we got from um, Health and Human Services, the federal government, um, as many other states in the Midwest. Hmm. So that also then raises, I think, a bigger question about the, the potential effectiveness of public policy. If, as you point out, people are going to do what people are going to do and whatever the governor says, some people are just going to decide to do it differently. Is this something that we can get control of from a public policy standpoint? Or is it something that we're just going to have to live through this way with these kinds of surges and then uh, low points un- uh, until there is a vaccine, which, which is you know a, a very different approach to solving a problem like this. I mean, the, once there is a way to prevent the spread uh, without social behavior, in other words, without relying on on human behavior, uh, that makes it different. But but is it is it impossible to manage something like this through public policy? Well. You know, I, I live in California, so I'll use the example uh, of this place. You know, California ha- is as large as you know, half of the Midwest, right? And so we have within this state, you know, also a, a less divided politics. And we have, the governor has you know, put in quite stringent measures through time, although quite targeted to different counties and has sort of been able to manage the state kind of as one country. And because, you know, the great desert basically separates us from the rest of the country um, and we've got an ocean on the other side, we have been able to sort of function a little bit um, in, a, in a bubble here. That doesn't mean that we haven't been hit by COVID, but on if you look at pretty much any of the sort of per million stats, California is doing pretty well. And Northern California is doing extremely well. Um, and we have some special conditions, right? We don't have, we don't share a border with North Dakota mm-hmm. uh, where there's uh, raging infections. However, we do share one with Nevada and, you know, things are out of control there too. So, you know, that'll certainly be put to the test over the next few weeks, whether California can hold out. Um, but life here has been fairly normal, but there have been statewide restrictions that have come into play um, many times, and it has, I wouldn't, you know, it's hard to say anyone's having true success, but it has been managed um, decently, effectively um, through through this period. Mm. And, and yet the governor of California is saying that he's got to institute some more 
restrictive uh, mm-hmm. uh, measures as well. Yes, for sure. I mean, well, you know, that's the that's what has has worked. You know, um, we don't have great models um, for, for for battling back coronavirus so that doesn't overwhelm healthcare systems. You know, we just don't, the way to do it is to keep people away from each other. You kind of slow the metabolism of a of a city or a state or a country. Um, and I, I just want to say, you know, the, there's all these other levers that the federal government has declined to pull, you know, we should be paying people to stay at home. I mean, this is what the countries that have most effectively preserved their economies Mm. as well as preserved the health of their people have done. They just paid companies to keep people on the payroll. And we could have done that. Uh, The politics of the United States uh, didn't, didn't allow that to happen, you know? And I think that's, that's really tough because it, it would have been good for the economy and it would have saved a lot of people's lives. Mm. Because I, I think one thing that we really also need to keep in focus, uh, aside from the collapse of healthcare systems, if you really let things get out of control, we've been telling ourselves through all this time, well, you know, treatments are getting better. We're, we're, we're capturing more cases of the total, you know, uh, universe of infections because we're doing more testing, mm-hmm. you know? And so we, we're imagining, okay, well, we've got all these cases, um, but it's not the same uh, as back in the springtime. And that's true. However, however, some analysis that we've um, done with the help of some people at Carnegie Mellon and also um, an epidemiologist uh, at the University of Washington um, shows that basically since August, the case fatality rate, so the percentage of people who are dying of the cases that we capture via, via testing, confirming them with a, with a test, um, has actually remained steady. So if we're seeing things triple, from August, that means something close to triple the deaths are going to occur. Yeah. And, you know, that case fatality rate, let's call it something like one and a half percent right now. That means, you know, for every 100,000 cases, we're getting 1,500 deaths uh, in the United States. And right now we're averaging over 150,000 deaths, which if that relationship holds over the next few weeks, we're going to reach the springtime peak of deaths uh, in that first week of December. And that's not even assuming anything about what happens to the healthcare system. Right. It's just sort of what the math says about what's going to happen. And so this is a really quite dire situation. We've got vaccines on the horizon, but we've got to get there. And we're probably still uh, a, a few months out from, you know, regular everyday people uh, having access to those uh, tools. To the vaccines, sure. Uh, I'm talking with uh, Alexis Madrigal. He's a staff writer at The Atlantic, a co-founder of the COVID Tracking Project and author of Powering the Dream, The History and Promise of Green Technology. We're talking about this national surge in COVID cases, which is affecting people all over the country, of course, and affecting us here in Michigan. Governor Gretchen Whitmer announcing on Sunday that we will go back to some of the restrictions that we all lived under during the spring and summer as a way of trying to get control of this new spike in cases and spike in hospitalizations and a smaller spike, but also an important one, uh, in COVID deaths. Uh, we're also talking about what this means for the holidays. Next week is Thanksgiving and soon after is Christmas and New Year's, times when we love to get together with friends and family uh, where they are important markers uh, of the year to end the year 
What are they going to look like this year because of COVID? What are you planning to do next week for Thanksgiving? What is that going to look like uh, in your household? We'd love to hear from you about all of those things. Uh, Give us a call, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. Give us a sense of how you're feeling about this current surge in COVID cases Uh, Are you relieved that things are going to close up here in Michigan beginning on Wednesday? Or are you worried about the idea of closing up again? Uh, And again, give us a sense of what your plans for Thanksgiving are looking like. Are you feeling good about what that's going to be? Or are you thinking that you're going to miss all of the things that you're used to doing? Uh, Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Before we get to listeners, Alexis, uh, I want to ask you to talk a little about the news around vaccines. Uh, We had this really important announcement by Pfizer last week that they were uh, at a point of what they say is 95% effective uh, use of, uh, of their vaccine. Uh, Moderna came out yesterday and said that they're close to the same thing and that they think they can produce something for the public in December. Uh, give us a sense of how hopeful we should be about those things and also give us a sense of Uh, the cautions that we ought to be aware of around the speed with which this was all done and, and getting people's hopes up uh, and expectations maybe, maybe too soon. Sure. Um, I mean, I think we need some hope. (laughs) I need something, right? Uh, Yeah. I, um, you know, I'm going to rely on this via one of our reporters at the Atlantic and Sarah Zhang been covering vaccines extremely well. So a lot of what I'm going to say, I've, I've learned uh, from her and through her reporting. Um, I think actually things have gone pretty well. This first um, couple announcements of vaccines uh, have been about as good news as we could have hoped for from these vaccines. Um, it's at the very top end, I think, of what um, experts were expecting to see from these trials. And I think that's just that's, it's the, I mean, let's be real, it's the best news since March. Yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is a big deal. Um, the logistics of this are going to be extremely, extremely complicated. I mean, this country is actually pretty good at logistics. And so it's one of the things that I'm quite hopeful about. But, you know, it, it takes time to produce tens and hundreds of millions of doses of these vaccines. So even if we're ready to go day one when the FDA gives... Uh, these vaccine makers, emergency youth authorizations, you know, they've been planning to stay, they've been manufacturing, they've been getting, you know, um, in the case of Pfizer's, you know, it requires very, very cold conditions. Um, so they've been getting freezers ready at all these places, you know, but it's gonna, it's gonna take some time. And it, it means, you know, we're really looking at December, January, February, March, and we'll see more and more people get vaccinated. Um, the, the, the real problem is the two timelines of outbreaks right now and this vaccine rolling out are just really poorly mismatched. Mm. Um, and I, I, the way I think about it is, and what I've been saying to my neighbors, you know, we have a pod, we're closing down our pod, everybody's going back into their houses. <laughs> like we're, we're doing all the things that other 
people are having to do, and it sucks. Yeah. And the, the thing that I have been saying to my neighbors is, listen, now that we know we have a vaccine on the horizon, the value of taking things seriously and not getting COVID is higher now than it mm. was before we knew that. Like, mm. if we knew we were going to be doing this for another year or a year and a half, which was completely possible sure. back in back in March, a lot of people were saying, hey, two years to a vaccine, two and a half. You know, like that was a, a, a normal thing for infectious disease researchers to think. So we've actually had tremendous success with vaccine development here in the U.S. Um, and, and across the world. I mean, the Pfizer vaccine, um, one reason that I, uh, one thing I like about it is that it wasn't developed solely in the U.S., not subject to uh, the, that company and the program around it was not subject to the same kind of political um, pressure <laughs> that, that maybe some of the others might have been. Um, and I think there's been good signs on, on top of all of this out of the FDA. You know, we didn't see rushed announcements. The FDA has taken its time to get the safety of this thing right. Yeah. And I think the, the, the worst case scenario would have been a vaccine announcement like the day before the election or two days before the election, because everybody would have known that that was a political <laughs> announcement. And the fact that that didn't happen, that, you know, a German developed vaccine is the first one that, that was out of the gates. I mean, all these things, I think, should add to people's confidence um, in these vaccines. And I mean, listen, I'm a reporter, like we are skeptical types, um, but I feel really good about how things have gone so far, both with the vaccine development, with the rollout, with the FDA's response. And I wasn't sure it was going to go like this. If you had asked me this, you know, uh, six weeks ago, I would have given you a pretty dark answer probably. Sure. So that has made me happy. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Alexis Madrigal, and we'll hear from you. We'll hear from Chuck, a caller who couldn't stay on the line but had a really interesting question about this. Uh, Jeannie in Ann Arbor, we'll get to you as well. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let us know how you're reacting to all the COVID news and what you are planning to do next week. When Thanksgiving Day arrives, what's that going to look like in your household, among your friends, among your family? It will be different than other years. Are you hopeful about that or are you kind of sad that things won't be the way they always are? We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET delivers trusted news, inclusive conversations, and cultural experiences that empower the community. 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks very much for joining us. I'm talking with Alexis Madrigal, a staff writer at The Atlantic and co-founder of the COVID Tracking Project. We're talking about this incredible surge of COVID cases and hospitalizations and the inevitable rise in deaths that accompany those things that have been happening over the last couple of weeks, what they mean for us as a nation, what they sort of call us to do. Again, we're learning about that right here in Michigan Right now, uh, we're also talking about what effect 
these things will have on the holidays, which really kick off next week with Thanksgiving and then roll through December and early January. What's that going to look like for you and yours this year? Uh, are you excited about maybe things being a little different or are you a little down about not being able to do all of the things that you normally do? I have to say that uh, reading in this morning's newspaper here in Detroit about the plans for a spectatorless Thanksgiving Day parade did make me a little, it made me a little down in the dumps, uh, given that uh, that's such uh, a cultural marker here in Southeast Michigan. Uh, the number of people who show up for that, it's something that I have rarely missed uh, in the time uh, that I've been here in Southeast Michigan. So uh, it's just a reminder that things are different. Everything is different right now. Give us a call and let us know what those differences look like for you. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Uh, you can also go to Facebook and Twitter, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, let's go to Jeannie in Ann Arbor. Jeannie, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. Um, so for our Thanksgiving, it is, it's one of my favorite holidays because you just cook and have fun. So my family and I, we kind of created a contingency plan for weather, for, you know, our kind of comfort level with how the cases go. So our good weather plan is we put a big, uh, put a big table out in the garage. We have the door open. We have one of the outdoor <laughs> patio heaters on and we just carefully all eat together. And I even ordered hilarious like thanksgiving face mask for it <laughs> but um as like as the contingency plan goes well bad weather what are we gonna do mm -hmm. well i have a sunroom and i can open all my windows and put um i have a house like a hospital grade air purifier in the house i can put that in the room and then we'll all have to take turns individually and then if our other respect like if other if case rates go up and our comfort level goes down with being together um, we then decided we would each make, and we would do this no matter what, but we're each doing like three or four dishes each. And if we decide we're not going to gather, which we'll make that decision kind of next week, then we're just going to plate everything up and meet each other in a parking lot, trade dishes. And <laughs> Exchange then go dishes, and right. There you go. Mm -hmm. So well, that way we have a little... a little bit of face-to-face -face time, but sure. a little more contained and, and some... Some, we still are able to cook for each other and enjoy each other's each other's meal. Yeah, yeah. No, Jeannie, that's. I mean, the the intricacy of your plans there, I think, is uh, quite impressive. You've got uh, you've got responses to every possible scenario, and I think there there's a lot of people trying to think through the same kinds of possibilities and come up with ways. To make sure that it's still kind of festive uh, and that uh, and that. The holidays feel at least a little bit uh, like the holidays. Jeannie, I, I really appreciate the call. Thanks very much. Um, uh, Alexis, I want to pose a question to you that we have from Twitter. Uh, a Twitter listener writes, A lot of weight and assumption is put on the arrival of the vaccine, but many news outlets report around 50% of those questioned would not take the vaccine, at least in the early stages. So what happens when that is taken into account? I think that's a great question. Uh, the, 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 the skepticism that people have about a vaccine, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the sort of uh, reaction to, I think some of it is a reaction to the way in which uh, the current 
administration has has handled those things and and made people uncertain. But but what effect will that have on the effectiveness of the vaccine itself? You know, it's it's one of those things where I'm not sure if you can truly poll people on this. Hmm. You know, I think when people think about it in the abstract, they think like. Yeah, you're well, I don't know. Do I want this? When they think about like, oh, wait a second, everyone takes this and it's available right now <laughs> and we can like go back to normal. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think that you'll see higher rates of vaccination than the some of the polling would indicate. Hmm. Um, so that's one piece of it. I also think it's really on our public health leaders to show through transparency with the data that these vaccines are safe. I mean, it's really on them and it's why um, it's a very good thing that we have independent review uh, of this data, that we have multiple health agencies across the world looking at these vaccines Mm -hmm. that we, you know, like, you know, over and over again in this uh, pandemic, I go like, well, I don't know. What are the Germans doing? What are the Japanese doing? (laughs) It turns out, you know, because it allows you, every country has their own internal politics, right, which complicate the things that officials say and Mm -hmm. do. But if you look across a few countries that have really different politics, if they're all saying the same thing, it probably is pretty good advice. And so um, that's kind of how I'm looking at this as well. Um, you know, I've had a lot of, and I, I want to say one thing about the federal government in this, mm-hmm. you know, we've, in the COVID tracking project, we've had a ton, a ton of contact with state and federal officials. Um, and, you know, as much as we can get mad about the response for, you know, in, in my case, get mad doing too little in other people's cases, get mad for doing too much. There are so many people in state and local health departments in HHS at CDC who are working so hard on this, so hard and mm-hmm. are just so exhausted and continue to work hard on it. And um, it's actually given me more faith even in, in civil servants having been up close to it for, you know, these last eight months and, you know, in contact with uh, hundreds of state, local and, and federal officials, you know, because most of these people, they're just trying to do the right thing for their constituents, for the residents of the place where they live. And um, it's actually, you know, legitimately inspiring, I think, even if um, I disagree with the particular path that that a lot of these folks have taken. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, uh, Jeannie, really appreciate the call and the comments and uh, that Twitter listener with the question, uh, about uh, effectiveness of vaccines if, if people don't uh, if people don't decide to take it. Um, uh, we've got another Twitter comment here. Uh, someone says, uh, we can think of it as paying forward to our futures and consider passing along our savings to feeding those who will need the help through the holidays, which will be a lot of people. That's a really great way. Uh, to think about this, uh, you know, hardship, I think, often brings out the best in uh, in many of us and makes us try to look out for each other a little more than we normally do. Uh, let's go to Brian on the east side. Brian, welcome to the show. Hey, how you doing? Hey, how are you? All right. I was in the service, and a lot of people in the service, when you enlist, you miss four years of holidays, <laughs> all for four years. And I just can't see why Americans just can't man up this one <laughs> holiday, one season of holidays, and stay away 
and then you get to get together next year. It doesn't right. make any sense to me to hear all these people whining all the time about <laughs> they got to get together with their relatives who they might not like that much anyway, but all of a sudden they can't get together with them, and they're whining about it. Yeah, Brian, <laughs> Brian, that's a little bit of a Grinch approach to uh, <laughs> to the holidays this year. Put them on the airwave. Get them out there. I, I know. <laughs> right, right. You know, I, I, I hear you, though, Brian. It, it, it is not the biggest or most important thing in the world, but it is, you know, it, it is a reminder of just how dark things are, I think, for, for, for people that, uh, that these kind of – you know, yearly markers that we have are just going to look different, and they're not going to be the same kind of things that uh, that we that we that we look forward to every every year. I have to say, you know, I I my I I celebrate my birthday around Thanksgiving uh, each year, and this is a pretty significant birthday uh, this year, and it's going to look really different than what I planned, uh, and that's a once in a lifetime. Uh, thing so it's not it's not just that people are whining uh, I think I think people really do feel a sense of uh, a sense of loss around uh, what's what's going to be different uh, this time. Yeah, so I, I think you know the the point there, uh, and thanks for your service to the country. I mean, is that we can really do like you are doing a service to the country yes. by doing this, and I think that you know one of the things that. Um, I think was was so tough about watching the way that this uh, the response to this the pandemic was politicized was that it very easily could have gone a different way, and you could have had people mm-hmm. on the right saying like, "Hey, this is our duty to the country to mm-hmm. protect our fellow citizens." Because one thing I, I want to add, and it's, it's depressing, so I'm sorry to add it, but <laughs> there's been a thought that maybe you could let the pandemic run, but you could protect the vulnerable. Yeah. And the vulnerable in this case is usually older folks, but also people with you know, pre-existing conditions, which is very, it's a, it's a large percentage of Americans, so yes. it's a lot of people. And the truth is that that has not happened. Like um, our project um, also tracks like long-term care facilities. And in every state where we see a surge generally, we also see a surge inside the nursing homes mm. and long-term care facilities. So there, there was some strategy that could have been executed in which you tried to let young people get it, but you tried to really, really, really protect um, older folks. The, the truth is that that isn't what is happening. Everybody's getting it. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. so... I think that's a really it's a really crucial point because I think people keep saying, you know, I keep hearing that, oh, we could protect the vulnerable or this was inevitable, you know, like all these kinds of things. And um It doesn't really work that way. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. yeah. And we have the data to show it. It's not just hypothetically you know. Right, right. Okay. Alexis Madrigal, staff writer at the Atlantic co-founder of the COVID Tracking Project. It was really great to have you here for this conversation. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thank you very much. Thanks, Detroit. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take another break. And when we come back, I'm going to catch up with Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha. We're going to talk about the recent rise in COVID cases here in Michigan and how she's doing months after contracting the virus herself. Stay with us for more Detroit Today.